Father, as we go into your word now, we just ask for a continued spirit of worship that we bow in submission to what you say in your word, that it would shape us and transform us, that it would show us who we are and who you're making us to be, who we used to be. Show us these things this morning. Encourage us. Even correct us. Would you help us go deeper into it? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're taking a pause from the Sermon on the Mount to do um, a few messages, obviously, on Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter. And we're calling these Blood, Sweat, Tears, Joy. You can imagine where Easter Sunday ends up, right? So that's where we're heading. Uh, this morning, though, is on tears. Would you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19? Luke chapter 19. Okay, and we'll start in verse 28. We'll read all the way up to the text we're going to focus in on this morning. After Jesus had said this, he went on up ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. And tie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And they, as they were untying the colt, the owner said, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone in another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. We'll pause there. So Jesus, in this passage, is setting his face to Jerusalem. He knows what awaits him there. It's not a surprise. He's going there with purpose. And and so as he goes, his disciples begin to praise him. And an interesting thing is Luke doesn't doesn't record the Hosanna praise. He actually records it like this in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Does that sound familiar? Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Well, 
on the day Jesus was born, we, we sang, we, uh, Marcy read the passage out of Hebrews where God commanded his angels to celebrate Jesus' birth, right? To, to celebrate and proclaim praise to him. Well, this is kind of a reverse of that. I think that was glory to God in the highest and on earth peace on, them, on whom he has favor. This one is peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So it's a similar phrase, and I think the idea is that uh, the, the peace comes from heaven. It's not that there's not peace on earth. It's just that the source of peace is heaven. And they probably didn't even know this. They didn't realize they were proclaiming the same thing the angels were, just in a few different words. But that's what they were doing. The angels celebrated the birth of the king, and they were celebrating the king on Palm Sunday. Now, um, let's move on. Uh, Obviously, he's riding on a donkey, and that's the Zechariah 9.9 prediction, your king comes humble gentle, riding on a donkey, on the colt, full of a donkey. So, so Jesus coming in with humility. Uh, the disciples are praising. Now what I want to focus on today is when Jesus sees the city in his response. That's where I really want us to dig in. So look at that again. Uh, again, we're Luke 19 and we're in verse 41. He sees the city and he starts crying. Now, Jesus cried twice, <clears throat> I believe, in the all four Gospels. You see him cry twice. Once, you know, is the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. It's at Lazarus' tomb. So he's crying over the death of his friend. Even though he knows he's going to raise Lazarus, but, but the death itself is, is uh, powerful, powerfully emotional to him. And so he cries. And, and I, think, I think as we look at this, we ought to just say, you know, if, if the Bible points out Jesus' tears, we had to understand why he's crying, what's going on. It's like my mic is pulling out here. There we go. Okay. We had to understand, like, what, what's going on when he's crying? Like, well, what's happening here? Well, he's crying because he sees the city, and he says, if you, this is verse 42, had only known what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. It's like the king is here. The, the, the prince of peace is here, and people weren't going to recognize it. I mean, they recognize it on Palm Sunday. The king's coming in, and they're shouting Hosanna. But in less than a week, they'd be shouting crucify him. Some of these same people, more than likely. And so, to him, that's like, this is, this, this is, this is sorrow. This is like people rejecting me, and, and I'm, I'm the source of their peace. So, um, it, there's a mystery there, and we'll come back to the mystery of it. Like, okay, Jesus, this was the plan. The plan was for you to go to Jerusalem and die. You've already predicted it a number of times. You know they're going to reject you, but that doesn't stop the emotion from coming. Just like he knew he was going to raise Lazarus. It doesn't stop the emotion. The emotion's still there. Now, next he says, The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you do not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So um, historians tell us this happened. So uh, Jerusalem tried to become independent of Rome, and so Titus came in there and said, I don't think so, and, and, and they surrounded Jerusalem and laid siege to it. Now a siege is, is, is when you try to starve the city inside while, while you're, the army is around the city. I've read the history on this. Just horrific things that happened during that time. And, and Jesus can see it. He knows it's coming. He knows there's coming a day when 
people are starving in the city of Jerusalem, but they can't get food outside the city because the army, the Roman army, is all the way around it. And Josephus, the historian, writes that uh, on any given day, you could have almost 500 people trying to escape the city. And if you tried to escape the city, the Roman army would take you and crucify you. So to leave the city meant crucifixion. To stay in the city meant starvation. Josephus would write they'd have gangs running around the city um, looking for people who might have food and assaulting them. He's like torture went on in the city to try to get food out of people. Just horrific things happened during this time. And Jesus says this is judgment because they didn't accept their king. And so he weeps. The other thing he says is there's not one stone left in another. So Rome just obliterated the temple. They just, they just ripped it down. Jesus then, and this is our, my point for the Palm Sunday, Jesus wept over the blindness of Israel and their resulting judgment. He wept over it. And it's a challenge for us because we need to weep over people. We, we need to mourn over how lost people are. So what I'd like to do with some of the time remaining is answer this question. Just how lost are we? How lost are we? Uh, I wasn't sure we were doing I, I didn't remember we were doing a kid's song. I, I had a kid's thing going on too. So um, I got a good way to start this whole thing. And it's kind of a heavy topic, so maybe starting it with a little lightness is the way to go. Um, most doctor jokes start with good news and bad news, right? Well, a doctor called a patient one day and says, got your test back and I have good news and bad news. The patient said, give me the good news first. The doctor says, the good news is you have 24 hours to live. Good news? Well, if that's the good news, what's the bad news? I forgot to call you yesterday. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. All right. All right. All right, well, this is, this is that's the lightest part of the message probably right there. <laughs> I, I want to look at and ask the question, j- just how lost are we as human beings? Apart from Christ, how lost are we? About six points. Um, I could have gone through the whole Bible and we could have been here for hours. What I did was, what pleased my, um, my brain was, I'm going to do three out of Ephesians and three out of Romans. I love Ephesians, I love Romans. Both of them deal with the lostness of humanity. So I just picked six, three out of each. This morning is the bad news. This morning we look at what makes Jesus weep. All right? Number one, Ephesians 2, verse 1 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you follow the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. So number one, humans are dead in their transgressions and sins. Now, to say that we're dead um, doesn't mean we're not moving, doesn't mean we're not physically alive, but it means according to our spiritual life, we are dead. We're, we're dead spiritually. What does that mean? What does it mean to be dead spiritually but be living in a body and still moving and making decisions, doing things? 
It means you are so dead, you can't do anything. You can't do anything to make yourself spiritually alive. Dead things can't improve their condition. They're just dead. Now, uh, I was thinking about this a lot, and I was doing some reading because part of this passage touches on um, the debate Christians have with each other on does God choose you to be saved? Does he elect you to be saved? Or does, d- does he reveal himself to you and you, you get a choice? You know, you, it's your free will. Now, Christians debated about this for centuries. We're not going to solve it this morning. But I, I, in reading on this passage and thinking about it, there's an interesting connection between so-called Calvinists and Arminians. You know, Calvinists would say, God chooses you. You don't have a choice in it. If you're going to be saved, it's because of God's choice. Arminians say it's free will. You get a choice, God or whatever else you want to follow. But there's an interesting connection with this passage. Whether you're free will or whether you're God elects or whether you're somewhere in the middle, this passage is agreed on that you are so dead, you're not going to choose Christ. You're so dead that, that there's nothing you can do to even reach out for him. You are dead Calvinists would say, you are so dead that unless God chooses you and sends his grace, you're not going to receive him. But if God does send his grace, it's irresistible. It's kind of like, it's kind of like you've got um, bread and water and a steak dinner, and God showed you how good he is. Here is the, here's the feast. Do you want the feast or the prison diet? You know? He's revealed how good he is, and it's irresistible grace. You can't help but but put your faith in him. That's what a Calvinist would say. An Arminian would say, but you got free will. And you are so dead, you would never reach out for Christ. You are so dead, you'd never reach out for Christ. But God in his grace takes the blinders off. The scales fall off, to use that analogy too. And now you have a choice. Christ or whatever else. And it's a real choice. It's a real free will choice. But the interesting thing is, both sides agree that you are so dead, you would never reach out for him. Dead is dead. And unless God gives you grace, you would never even have a choice. You'd be lost. Number two, Ephesians 2, verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Let me correct the NIV. Um, The word objects is techna. It's the word children. We are children of wrath. It It means that who I am deep down in relationship to God without Christ... I am under God's wrath. You know, he may love me as a good heavenly father would. He even loves his enemies. That's what, that's what God does. But the way that I relate to him without Christ is I'm under his wrath. I'm under his judgment. I am condemned. Some people in the world like to say that you know, well, is, is it nature or nurture? Are people bad because they were brought up that way? Are people bad because they just made a choice to be that way? 
And, and it seems like Ephesians, uh, God would say, you're, you're a child of wrath. This is what you were born into. You, you were born into this. Now, I'm not talking right now about, you know, salvation for infants and children. I mean, I believe that. But I'm saying who you are at your core without Christ is you relate to fa- the Father as someone who's underneath his wrath. Number three, Ephesians 4.18. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Humans have hard hearts. And, and I look at this Ephesians passage, the interesting thing is, you know, again, one of the arguments is people sin because they don't know any better. And if we just educate them, if we just teach them the right thing to do, they'll be better. But, but here, we go a step deeper. Yes, they're darkened in their understanding. They're separated from the life of God. Yes, they do have ignorance. There is ignorance there. But it's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. At the core of it, you say, well, people might not know any better. Yes, but underneath the ignorance, there's a reason for it. It's because their hearts are hard towards God. Apart from Christ, people have hearts of stone. And they, they are against God. And so things uh, uh, of God come up, and, and, it, and it's a, don't want that. There's a hardening. What, and, and you look at like Pharaoh, that's the classic example of a hard heart. Some passages say God hardened his heart. Other times during the plagues, it says he hardened his own heart. But it's like, here you are seeing miracles done. Miracles and yet your heart is so... Like, you can't claim ignorance. You, you see the power of God at work. And yet your heart is so hard that you can't accept it for yourself. That is the plight of the human race. They are hardened towards God. It's an internal problem. <laughs> so you might say, what's the problem in the world today? Answer, people. People are the problem. We are the problem, apart from Christ. Number four uh, is Romans one twenty-eight. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Humans are given over to depravity. They're given over to depravity. The idea here is, you're all going to worship something. If you choose not to worship God, God says, I'll give you what you want. Whatever else you say you want over here, you can have it. But, but just so you know, by giving you that, you're going to keep going and going and going further and further into depravity. Now, now the doctrine of depravity, when we talk about that, is it doesn't mean that you are as bad as you could possibly be. That would be like quantity, you know? If that was the truth, then this verse would mean everybody is walking around killing people, right? Because you know if you've hated someone, that's like wanting them dead. If you insult them and are angry at them, Jesus says, that's like murder. So if depravity meant that, that you carried out the act, we'd all be killers, like, like literal killers. And, and instead of lust, everyone would be committing adultery because you might as well just do it. Depravity refers to more of the quality of your heart. It's what's going on in here. That my heart is turned towards sin. That, that I like it. That I want it. John would say in another, another way, he would say, 
that people had loved the darkness. They loved the darkness. That, that's depravity. It's about quality, not quantity. And God says, if you don't worship me, I'll, I'll, I'll let you have other things to worship. But just so you know, when you start to worship those other things, they'll take you down really, really depraved places. But you can have it. In fact, I'm giving you over to it. And maybe in that depravity, you'll see your need for me. Um, hmm. Anybody watch the news on Phil Robertson of Duck Dynasty recently? He said some, made some explosive comments. Um, I'm not going to quote him because it's a little bit graphic, but, but he said basically, um, if you're an atheist and you're in your house and someone breaks into the house, kills your family, hurts your wife, you have no room to complain because you have no, basically no moral foundation. There's really no right and wrong for you, so you shouldn't complain about that. Um, I think I know the point Robertson is trying to make. I don't, a couple of things I don't like. One is I don't like using, he, he used much more graphic language about what that, that house break-in person would do to your wife and your kids. You know, it's like, okay, thanks, that was great. Um, did, didn't need that. So, so first of all, you're, you're kind of like, you're not wishing that on an atheist, but you're talking about an atheist going through a horrific experience. That's not helpful, in my, in my opinion. Um, secondly, though, I think his point is that atheists don't have a, a absolute truth, that, that, that moral foundation that can you defend it and prove that this is right and this is wrong? Absolutely. Absolute truth. And I would say that's a decent point. But at the end of the day, do atheists have a conscience? Yes. They have a conscience. <laughs> Do atheists live in a country where a lot of these things that he was talking about are outlawed? Yes. Do they have a right to complain if someone breaks into their house and does these horrific things? Yes. They do. Conscience. Law. I mean, yeah, complain. You have a right. Um, But underneath all that, underneath the conscience, underneath the laws of this land that restrain evil, is a depraved heart that is bent on doing those evil things. Even if we hold them back. Because logic would tell us, I don't want to spend the rest of my life in jail for doing this. That's more of what depravity is speaking of. Um, Number five. You know this one. You kids should know this one or probably memorized it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Humans always fall short of God's glory. It means on your best day, on my best day, I'm still falling short. It means even when I do something for somebody and and I serve them in a certain way, there's, there's the real possibility that I have impure motives, you know? Like I hope people notice me do, notice me do this. I hope that they think better of me because I've done this. That there's always that nagging thing in me that falls short of what God requires of me. And sometimes it's just outright acts of sin. But, but even on our best day, we always fall short of the glory of God. 
Number six, humans cannot submit to God's law. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. There is something in humans that, that, that is, I will not submit to God. I, I just will not. They cannot. And even if they were to try apart from Christ, God wouldn't accept it. It wouldn't please him. It wouldn't please him. Even if you tried as hard as you could, it says it will not please God. As you look at this list, I hope you can see just, like I say, I picked six. I could have picked 24, you know? I hope that you can see how lost people are. And, and, and I'm not saying this so that we can walk around like, oh, there's a bunch of unsafe people around. I wonder what's going to happen now. What horrific, sinful things going to... It's not, it's not supposed to make us not trust people and, and think worse of people. It, it's all of us. It's all of us apart from Christ. And I still have a sin nature, and you still have a sin nature that's still in me that sometimes wants to go back to this way of living and doing, even on my best day. I think it's amazing that Jesus knows that this is what's in the heart of the Jewish people. Like, he knows they're going to crucify him in less than a week. And he knows that's the plan. That's the plan. He's got to die. And yet, the emotional reaction to how lost people are, the, the emotional reaction of these six points and many others, causes him to weep. And, and on part of that, I'm just like, that is the mystery of God's sovereignty. How is it that Jesus' tears can mingle with God's sovereign plan? The cross had to happen, but he's crying over it because of how far gone people are. I tried to think of an illustration that would uh, communicate how interesting this is to think about, crying over the fact that you know this is part of God's plan, but these are still people. Um, we'll see if this works. We'll see if it works. Um, our family watches uh, Wheel of Fortune. Anybody else here Wheel of Fortune watcher? Some of you are. Okay, good. I take it back. This is the second light moment in the sermon. Second light moment. Um, if you get to the prize round, you're at the very end, right? And, and they give you those six letters, R-S-T-L-N-E, you know, and the, and the letters come up on the thing, and you get to choose a few more letters. And, and then you try to solve the puzzle, and you get the prize. Imagine the prize is salvation. And there's a puzzle maker, God, right? Here's his word in front of you. You could put the pieces together. This creation, look at creation. You see how beautiful it is? There's a letter, right? You, you see the letters of the Bible. You start opening the Bible, you've got letters coming at you all over the place. You can see who he is. Now let's change game puzzles. Price is right. Audience participation, right? We're the church. You ever notice in Wheel of Fortune where he's always like, shh, you know, nobody help. Nobody say anything. Gotta be very quiet while you're solving that last puzzle. Price is right. They're screaming out the answers, right? They all think that they're right. That's us, you know? That's us. We, we, we get to yell out the answer. We get to yell out the answer. So 
there's three roles to play in the salvation of people. There's God. You know, he's put his revelation out there. He's put the Bible out there. Do you understand it? Are you putting it together? Do you see the creation he made? Then there's people that are lost. They're stumped. They're puzzled. Thank you. Um, and trying to figure this thing out. Like, how are all these pieces fit together that I'm not here by accident? There's a purpose for me. There's, is there a God? Is this his word? Who made all of this? They're putting all these pe- All the letters are coming together. And then there's us in the audience sharing. So the best way I've ever heard this explained is there's three responsibilities in the salvation of people. There's God who has to save. God saves. At the end of the day, if God doesn't give grace, people don't get saved because they're dead. There's the person's responsibility to accept him. Because if you don't accept him, there's judgment in hell. You're responsible to solve the puzzle. Even if it's a hard puzzle, you're responsible to solve it. And then there's us in the audience that are saying, this is the answer. This is the answer. We're responsible to share. And so I don't fully understand the whole thing of it's God's plan that Jesus is crucified, and yet he sees the people and he weeps. But I know it's something beautiful because I know that when Jesus sees lost people, it creates sorrow in him. The people are dead. Yep. They're depraved. Yep. They're hostile to God. Yep. They're children of wrath. Yep. But he loves them. Can we pull up the other Ephesians passage? But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It's like you're lost, you're dead, you're depraved, you're hostile, child of wrath, but God loves you. And because he loves you, he gives grace to you. Grace that allows you to accept him and his gift of salvation. He just loves us. He can't stop. That's who he is. And so he offers this gift to everyone. And then he wants to shower us in the coming ages with the riches of his grace. He wants to keep pouring it on when we get to heaven more and more and more. If I could say three things to you this morning in response to all of this, it's not fun to look at the sin passages in the Bible. We probably avoid them because we'd rather see who we are now in Christ than who we were then. Let's say a few things. Number one, it is good for us to remember who we were without Christ. It's good to remember. Actually, Paul says that in Ephesians. Uh, Remember at one time you were cut off from the covenant without God. You know, he, he tells us to remember. It's good to remember. This is who you are. This is who you used to be. Not who you are now, but it's who you used to be. Number two, it's good for us to mourn for those that don't know Christ. Do you have a heart that breaks over the things that breaks Jesus' heart? Do, do you see people with Jesus' eyes? Yeah, you know what? 
in less than a week, those people were going to crucify him. But that doesn't change his sorrow, his compassion, his desire for them. You work with people. You might have people in your family that are so hard towards God. And they might make life harder on you. And there might be some bitterness there in your heart because of it. Could you get to the point of Jesus and feel sorrow for them? Because they are given over to depravity. They're they're given over to all of these things. They're dead spiritually. So, so, So could you set aside for a moment all of your righteous indignation and and just be sad. Because they're just doing the things that come most naturally. And, And they can't do anything to solve the problem because, yes, they're dead. It's good for us to mourn for those that don't know Christ because in mourning we get to number three. It's good for us to pray and to share the gospel. It's good for us to pray for those people and not just pray that they'd stop doing those sinful things. You know, you're not going to solve the sinful things until they come to Christ. Pray for people. Uh, take advantage of this week. You know, Easter week, people have on their minds spiritual things because <clears throat> it's the holiday. Because little girls get to dress up in pretty dresses. We get to hide eggs. We do these, these ritualistic sort of things, you know, not saying they're bad, I'm just saying this is what we do. It's on our minds. So why not be praying intently this week for people that you know that are dead, that God might give them the grace to become alive, that God may take the blinders off, and that they might make a decision to follow Christ. That could mean inviting them to Good Friday services. It could mean inviting them to Easter Sunday services. It could mean, after you've invited them, you ask them, so what'd you think? What'd you think? And then they tell you what they think, and then you say, let me tell you what he means to me. And then you say what he means to you. This is what we're here to do. We're not here to be the Wheel of Fortune audience. We're here to be the Price is Right audience. Amen? Amen. I'm sure there's somebody. Has, has anybody not seen The Price is Right? Is that any foreign to anybody here? Okay. They're just screaming out the answer, just screaming it out. That's who we're here to be, and it's Easter time. Let's do it well. Let me pray for us.